to, I mean, just in our prayer about the drought, um, it was it was cool to see that there that people are, are activated about this. And surely, I mean, it, it's quite something when someone who works in big agriculture can stand up and and deliver the prophetic message that Chris did there. But that was already happening in our group. And I wonder if you know our prayers can't actually meet that point um, of 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 activation in our lives. So Chris is pointing to um, our wallets and our, and our stomachs, actually, when he's saying, actually, we do have connections with farmers, even if we don't realise that the great sort of, one of the great prophets of our age, Wendell Berry, reminds us that eating is an agricultural act. Um, and so uh, I would really encourage us this week, actually, when we say grace, let's remember the farmers actively. We, we can pray for rain, but we can also... Uh, we can be mindful when we're eating that we're affecting, we're connected with farmers in, in that instance. Uh, I just say that because um, there's actually a bit of a food um, theme this morning. You can see my message is called Taste and See. And some of uh, what Pete was actually um, reading to us from the psalm there is going to come out as well. Um, and the lectionary this morning has just this section of Psalm 34, which I'm going to read to you. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his holy people, for those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. And that's one of the things we've just been talking about, seeking peace and pursuing it. This is um, a psalm of David. Another one of those, just by the way, acrostic psalms that I got to do an acrostic psalm not that, that long ago. And again, it's just, uh, um, there's so much about the background of it. Um, that makes it richer. It, it's sort of coming out of the period of David's life where he's been anointed by Samuel to be the next king of Israel. But then you might remember he has to sort of go on the run for a while because King Saul uh, has mixed feelings about another king coming up. And um, it's actually connected to the part in that season of David's life where um, he goes and sort of seeks refuge in a neighboring kingdom. Um, and you might remember this story where uh, that king kind of goes, oh, this is a significant person here. And he realizes there's a political, you know, dimension to what's happening. And David all of a sudden doesn't feel safe in that land anymore. So he pretends to be crazy. Um, you might have heard that story. He pretends to be crazy. Um, so when we read, say, the lions are prowling um, in, in the first section that's up there, that the lions may grow weak and hungry. That's a real image for David. The most powerful person in his world is out to kill him. And he is, you know, sleeping in caves. He has to look over his shoulder everywhere um, for fear of his life. And yet he can write this beautiful, hopeful song um, where he says, and this is where I get the, the title of the message from this morning, Taste and See that the Lord is good. And in fact, he says, I'm blessed. I'm taking refuge in God. And I feel blessed 
in this moment. How does that work? Well, that's what we're going to unpack a little bit this morning. Um, I uh, have a bit of a love for, for food, um, as some of you might know, maybe too much of a love for food. And I think this taste and see language is just a really good way to read this psalm, to get something out of it. So I'm going to work through the food metaphor a little bit here. And I'm going to give you three Fs. Now, as I was outlining um, my three Fs uh, to Sharilyn, just running it by her, she said, how come fussy's not in there? Um, And I had to, because I'm probably more spiritual than she is, I had to say, listen, just because I like eating uh, everything, uh, there's some people in my life who I love, who are fussy, and I don't want it to seem like this sermon is out to judge them. So if you are in this room and you're fussy, I'm not saying that less fussy or more, less fussy people are more spiritual than you. I'm trying to kind of put that on the table, and I've chosen three other Fs that we'll get to in a minute. I don't know if you've ever thought about... Um, if you had the ability to kind of transport back to a moment in history, a particular moment in history that you would love to see what that moment would be, the very spiritual people in this room might say, I wish that I was sitting at the feet of Jesus when he delivered the Sermon on the Mount or something like that. Some of uh, the less spiritual people in our midst might wish that they saw Jimi Hendrix play live in concert or something uh, along those lines. For me... Uh, hands down, if, if I could witness one moment in history, it would be the moment when popcorn was discovered. Now, it's not even that I, like, I'm crazy about popcorn, but I just love getting inside uh, that, that moment, imagining what it was like when... I've got to reach for an Hispanic name, but it was obviously pre-Hispanic. A Mesoamerican man... Um, leaves his corn too long and he goes to grab an ear and it's all shriveled up and dry and you know it's hard times it's not easy to make uh, a living out in the desert he's disappointed with himself he kicks it into the fire and then all of a sudden you know uh, he's hitting the ground maybe he doesn't have to hit the ground because he wouldn't have had guns uh Uh, introduced to him by my ancestors at that point Um, but then he gets up after after the the fright of the explosion and there's these little sort of atomic clouds scattered on the ground around his fire and and he does what you know any sensible person would do in that situation he picks one of those atomic clouds up and puts it in his mouth yeah right um I mean, that's part of the intrigue. Why did he think to do that? Or she? Um, So, sorry? It would have been been a man. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And then he tries it with butter and salt and caramel. And he's like, I'm on, I'm onto something here. Calls one of his friends. No, actually, that's anachronistic as well. Sends the smoke signal up, come round, says to his friend, watch this, goes through the whole thing again. Says, now try one of those little atomic clouds, and his friend says, you're crazy, I'm not doing that. But he convinces him to do it, and the next thing you know, it's popcorn party, right? Like, everyone is around at the popcorn king's house, uh, Pueblo, or uh, what do they call him? Uh, a mesa. And, um, and, and he's, like, getting all this credit for this amazing invention. Man, that would be cool, wouldn't it? Would you come with me to that moment in time? 
even more than you'd go to the Sermon on the Mount? Don't answer that question. Um, Maybe an unlikely scenario, but just one that's captivated my imagination. Another potentially unlikely scenario that's kind of food-related is uh, your, your mate, Jono, is, is doing some renovations at his house. Maybe he's putting on a deck. And being a good friend, you agree to go around and help him on a Saturday morning. And so uh, you go to his house early on Saturday. Maybe he's got a ute or he's borrowed one. And you do the obligatory trip to Bunnings, right? And as you're about to enter that temple of uh, whatever that's a temple of, um, you go past the sausage sizzle thing, right? And Jono says, you have got to try one of those. And you're like, Jono, I'm Australian. People have been shoving those things, you know, into my mouth at any given moment for the whole of my life. In fact, I think premature babies in this country get, you know, a drip of sausage and tomato sauce and white bread, don't they, going straight into them. You can't avoid... uh, a sausage on bread in this country. So you just look at Jono like you're an idiot. Uh, Or maybe I'm out at the tiller, or someone's out at the tiller at a coffee shop, observing other punters drinking coffee and going, I see you like coffee. Try it with sugar. Those are both ridiculous scenarios. Why are they ridiculous scenarios? Because everybody, in this country at least, has eaten sausage and bread, haven't they, with tomato sauce. We had it on Friday night um, at, at Fusion. Um, and everybody has tried coffee or tea with sugar. They already know whether they want to have sugar in their drink or not, right? You don't actually have to encourage somebody to taste a sausage on bread. You don't actually have to encourage somebody to put sugar in their coffee. The instance in which you would need to encourage somebody to taste and see is the instance where you think that that person might be missing out on something, right? So you go to a dinner party and uh, the host or hostess has made an unusual hors d'oeuvre that you just, it was a combination of things that you just wouldn't think to put together. And they say, hey, taste this. There's something about that experience that they want you to have that they think that you might not have without some encouragement. You kind of get that picture? There was a church that got planted out of Cornerstone in the 90s, uh, a Hungarian church. Do people remember that? And I went to one of their New Year's Eve parties and um, the drink that they had on New Year's Eve when they wanted to have a good time, the Hungarian Pentecostals, and this is maybe slightly scandalous, um, was called a big cat. So they're like, here, have a big cat. I don't know what a big cat is. What am I about to drink? It's half Coca-Cola, half red wine. And that's what I said. Oh, you know, but you're in that position, really, when you go to someone's house for a party, aren't you? And actually, it was, it was pretty good. Uh, it, was, it was pretty good. And I'm glad that they encouraged me to taste a big cat because I probably would never have thought of mixing Coca-Cola and red wine uh, without having gone through that experience, without someone saying, actually, taste and see. Have a go. You could be missing out on something. The same thing happens at restaurants, right? You, uh, someone might, you know, when you ask, say, the waiter, well, what, what do you recommend? And they'll recommend something that you would never make and you might never try. 
I don't know, pan-seared sea scallops with blood pudding and a sherry reduction or something like that. You're never going to make that. There's a good chance you haven't had it. And then you have it and you're like, this is actually really good. This is worth tasting and seeing. I think there's something um, to that phrase when David uses it here. But it's unusual. David is writing these songs that are for singing by a nation whose whole culture is set up around the worship of their God, right? The temple is at the center of everything that they do. Um, As we've talked about in this series, you know, everything that a Jew did, their clothes, the way they groomed themselves, the way they spent their time, it was all about God. It was all God-focused. It was all about living a life of worship. And yet David can say to that nation of people set up that way, taste and see. He's encouraging them to do something because he thinks they might be missing out on something. If David can imagine that a people whose whole life is oriented, is is kind of constructed for the worship of God, might be missing out on something to do with God, on, on a revelation of who God is, it strikes me that we... Uh, living in a kind of sea of secularity could easily also fall into that same situation where we're Christians. Yeah, we, we know the God thing. But David, the psalmist here, could be saying, actually, hang on a second. There's something that you could be missing in the way that you relate to God in your spiritual life that without a bit of encouragement, without some sort of new action, you could miss out on entirely. Who wants to miss out on something good that God has for them? Nobody, right? So it's worth having a look at this, would we agree? David is saying, you know, there is a level of relationship with God that is possible. um, That it's also possible to miss out on an experience of his goodness. And he connects that with this phrase, Blessed is the one who takes refuge in God. Now, I want to talk to you about three reasons why we might not taste and see that the Lord is good. Three things that could be standing in the way of us going to that next level with God, of experiencing this thing that David is saying is there and we risk not coming into the first of those and we're going along the food line here is it's possible that we don't taste and see something in this life it's possible that we don't taste and see something about God to sort of tease the metaphor out because we're afraid right um uh, I was watching something on the ABC the other day where uh, the people up in Arnhem Land go directly into the mangroves when they're, when they're hungry, the Yongle people, and they pull these mangrove worms out of the mud and just like lower them into their mouths uh, raw, straight away. I've got to admit, as much of an omnivore as I am, it's a slightly scary idea um, to eat a mangrove worm. People have been doing it for millennia. Presumably it shouldn't make me that sick, but maybe I'm sort of attaching 
the possibility of a negative experience I've had in the past to that act. A time when I've eaten something that has kind of made me feel like I wanted to throw up or something. Or maybe I've been in at a dinner party and eaten something and felt really, it's like turned my stomach, but you've had to kind of, it's, a bit, it's a, been a bit of a scene, you know, you've had to somehow kind of manage a difficult situation. Maybe we've really gotten sick from something that we've eaten in the past. Um, if that's true for food, it's actually true for life more broadly, actually. Um, we can be afraid, say, I think a big one is the fear of missing out. If you go to a restaurant, if you've ever been to a restaurant with my wife, um, there's a good chance you've seen this. She hates missing out. Like for her to go out for a meal is a big deal um, and she really wants to savour it. And multiple times in our marriage, I've seen this thing happen where she goes, oh, that looks good, Mm, but I normally have that. Maybe I'll try this other thing. And then the person next to her, probably her mum, orders the thing that she normally has and it comes out and it looks amazing. And then the thing that Sherilyn sort of took a risk on comes out and she's like, oh, I just, I missed it. I, w- I wanted to eat that. And now I've got this thing that's not as good. Have you ever had that experience before? Oh, a missed opportunity to enjoy something that I know that I'm really going to enjoy. <laughs> um, how much uh, in life can we kind of have that dynamic in the background and uh, my generation and younger is famous for it right? we, we talk about FOMO fear of missing out every single decision that comes our way whether we're going to go to this party or whether we're going to go to that show whether we're going to go to this school whether we're going to get that job we kind of process through this um, filter of am I going to miss out on a better option here but the fears um, that sort of dominate who we are at the root of our humanity, they go uh, a bit deeper than that, actually. Um, They go to things like death, loneliness, uh, not being significant, a fear of failure, a fear, uh, perhaps, of rejection. It's interesting that David, in this passage, reaches for fear language, and he does it in a way that we're probably familiar with if we read the Bible at all. He talks about this fear of God stuff, right? So in verse 9 and verse 11 there, he's talking about the fear of the Lord. Um, And it's a strange kind of term. It's maybe one that we're a little bit uncomfortable with. In verse 9 he says, Fear the Lord, you his holy people. Fear those, uh, for those who fear him lack nothing. And he also says in verse 11, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. One way that people have kind of explained it, um, in the same way that we've talked about, you know, things that compete for our attention, things that we devote our lives to, things that occupy our time, things that we spend our money on, are kind of like idols. Is that a a familiar concept to you? So anything that you could be worshipping, giving worth to in your life that's not God can become like a little God in your life and that might be professional um, advancement you know your career that could be uh, a relationship that could be your children Uh, anything in our life which can sort of take the place of God 
anything that we can ascribe primary worth to can be an idol, can be a false god. It's a little bit like that, I think, with the fear language, with this idea of fearing God. We can fear idols. Those things in our life um, that occupy our attention, um, that kind of dominate our psyche, that, um, that sort of motivate our priorities, if they're based on fear of anything but God, can be problematic, right? Um, so fear of death, it's a good thing to, um, to stave off death by, you know, living healthily, uh, by exercising, by eating well. Um, but you probably have also come across, even just in, in movie or televisions, uh, movies or television, uh, you probably have come across uh, instances where there's a person who's dominated by fear of death, right? So it might mean that they, they worry about going outside, they don't like to touch other people, they have a very strict dietary regime. Um, and it, it warps who they are a little bit. You, that, that's probably not an uncommon idea. And you can kind of ap- apply that to any of those things on the list and more. You know, someone who's lonely, afraid of ending up alone, can get themselves into all sorts of really unhealthy relationships, trying to eliminate the prospect that they're going to die alone, that they're never going to uh, achieve some of the relational goals that they might want to achieve. It goes further than that, though. Um, it's not just about sort of subbing. Yeah, you can, you can worship an idol. You can, you can sort of fear an idol or you can fear God. I found this quote from a guy called William D. Eisenhauser, who was a, a pastor and theologian. And he says this, Unfortunately, many of us presume that the world is the ultimate threat and that God's function is to offset it. How different this is from the biblical position that God is far scarier than the world. When we assume that the world is the ultimate threat, we give it unwarranted power. For in truth, the world's threats are temporary. When we expect God to balance the stress of the world, we reduce him to the world's equal. As I walk with the Lord, I discover that God poses an ominous threat to my ego, but not to me. He rescues me from my delusions, so that he may reveal the truth that sets me free. He casts me down only to lift me up again. He sits in judgment of my sin, but forgives me nevertheless. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but love from the Lord is its completion. It reminds me of an idea that came out of another of David's Psalms, Psalm 23, where you know, I talked a bit about how the ladder of salvation that comes down into the pit of our brokenness and of our sinfulness, it doesn't just get you up out of the pit to where you want to be, because that would be like um, taking you back to the roof of the palace. So David wrote that psalm, you know, after he'd fallen. Uh, fallen's not even a great word, actually. After he'd got himself and done some stupid things, uh, he'd been selfish. He finds himself in the pit. God doesn't just want to restore us back to the place that suits us, right? God wants to take us back to 
the place that suits his purposes. So I talked about either going to the roof of your palace, your domain, the things that you can control, or the roof of the walls of Zion, the top of the walls of Zion, where you're a part of God's purposes. What Eisenhower's saying here is we don't um, just run to God to get away from fears of everything else. Actually, we go to God. We're in a relationship with God because he's everything. He knows um, exactly what we're created for. Um, He is the source of all meaning. Anything that can make sense or be good or be worth doing is found in him. And it just happens, as David reminds us in this passage, that that place is the safest place to be, right? To be right where God wants you. I wonder if someone could get me some water, actually. I'm struggling a little bit here. So um, it's not as though um, we fear God for our own purposes. It's just that there is nothing else but God. Ultimately, um, we don't go to God to save us from our fears, but we go to him because he is everything. We can allow fears to prevent us, thanks Graham, from living in that reality, which is the point and the problem. So fears are worth dealing with, are worth facing up to, because they can be an impediment to being where God wants you to be. But they shouldn't be the baseline motivator. The baseline motivator is that God loves you He knows what's best for you. He has a good plan for you. And to live in the center of that is exactly um, where you should be because fear, the things that you fear can't reach you. And that's why David can sing in this psalm, living into that reality. Fear the Lord, you whose holy people, for those who fear him lack nothing. He says, the lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. David had lions on his case, you know, uh, vicious predators that sought his life. And he could say, I'm going to outlast them. I've got nothing to fear from them because the Lord is my refuge. I don't know what that looks like right now, but I trust that God's got my back. And so those growling predators that are hunting me can do me no harm. He also says, whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. I mean, that's easier said than done from that place of being pursued, but isn't that a beautiful picture? Who knows that when you've got predators on your case, you know, when you're in that place of being hunted, and you will be hunted if you're in God's purposes. It's so easy to slip into the dirt of it, isn't it? Um, I think Satan often orchestrates these really insidious, profoundly evil plans that would have us be pitted against other good people, you know, or, or would have us see other people as the source of our problems. And David just says, that's not what we do. We, we rise above that. I'm being hunted by someone. I don't make them my enemy I continue to speak good. I continue to trust that God is my refuge. I continue to sow into peace, invest into peace, knowing that I'm safe. I'm right where God wants me to be. I'm right in that place of refuge. Taste and see that, David says. So that's the first 
um, thing, the first F that can get in, in the way of us being in that place of refuge, that place where God wants us to be, that place where we were created to be, that place at the centre of God's purpose. Fear, right? Whatever that fear is. Fear of anything but the Lord. The second reason that we sometimes don't taste and see is because we're familiar and this is kind of related to the first point, but it's distinct enough that I thought, sort of thought it was useful to tease it out for us this morning. Um, I, um, going back to the food metaphor, I don't know if you've ever met someone who's just a butter chicken person. I think I've been a butter chicken person at, at times in my life. Actually, mine's Vindaloo, but the same, uh, the same dynamic applies. Where, you know, everyone's been to at least many Indian restaurants in, in their life. And you, there's always someone in the crowd who looks at the menu up and down, ums and ahs, and just says, I'm just going to have the butter chicken. I'm just a butter chicken girl. Uh, that's what I always have. Once I tried something else, I didn't like it so much. So it's butter chicken for me. Um, I wonder if there's not a kind of risk of a butter chicken spirituality, actually, um, where the butter chicken has worked for you, it's gratifying, um, and so that's what you do. But then it becomes just what you do, right? That's just that's how we do things here. That, that's, that's just how we do praise and worship. Andrew, I think, picked up on this a little bit as he was leading worship for us, that we can, particularly as Christians or religious people, we can kind of fall into a butter chicken spirituality where it's just like, that's what devotions is. It's half an hour of reading the Bible in the morning. Don't touch that. Don't move things on the stage because that would be going from a butter chicken to a Rogan Josh. Um, and that's not we, what we do. We're butter chicken people here. Uh, the church of butter chicken it says on the door right you know what you're getting there's there's some good um, there's some good stuff going on in there butter chicken is delicious Um, normally the way we do things has some sort of reason some sort of purpose it's not a mistake it's not an accident Um, but uh, there's something uh, called the law of diminishing returns uh, that can kick in. You might have heard the the phrase "familiarity breeds contempt," yeah, which I, I think is true at times. But in my opinion, more often than that is true. This is true: that familiarity breeds complacency. Rick Warren actually talks about this a bit. He says. Um, you know, if you just do the same thing all the time, sort of for its own sake, unthinkingly, if you can't break out of that mould, this law of diminishing returns kicks in where the benefit that you're once getting from that good thing becomes decreased, right? And so what works for you begins to work against you to some degree. Now, this is the influence, and obviously uh, I'm, I'm very... Uh, early on in my journey. This is the influence of having Graham now at Cornerstone, Pastor Grafham Clark, we sometimes call him because he's got a graph for everything. But this is kind of the basic idea, right? So if something uh, works for you, it may get even better. Like the, the return on that might improve 
for a season. But eventually, you're going to hit a point where the return on that diminishes. So sports scientists and elite athletes know this. Um, if you're doing no exercise at all, to aim for a 5K run is not a bad thing, right? Um, you might not be able to run 5K right off the bat, but hopefully after a few weeks, you'll be able to run uninterrupted for five kilometres. And that is an achievement, uh, an achievement that's noticeable. And there's probably other noticeable benefits that would go along with that. Maybe you start to drop a bit of weight, you feel stronger, you even get faster for a while. But any athlete, even a 5K specialist, will tell you that if you just keep running 5Ks to train to be fast at 5Ks, you're going to plateau. Um, your body kind of gets used to doing the same thing. And then other things are going to kick in, like um, maybe, well, I mean, we're all ageing. Um, what uh, sports scientists and athletes do these days is they disrupt their training. So instead of just doing the 5Ks, an elite 5K runner might do some sprints a couple mornings of the week and then they might do a longer run because they have to sort of shock their body into going, hang on a sec, I'm, I'm stressed and I need to adapt to this new type of stress. And that's why uh, lots, lots of the exercise activities that are kind of trendy at the moment are really like CrossFit are really weird where you, you're doing exercises that you would never normally do like know, lobbing chickens over the train line. That's what I sometimes see the CrossFit people from up the road doing up here. Because there's some benefit actually in just doing something new. Um, it shocks your body into adapting and getting stronger. And I think there's an application to this for our spirituality as well. And I think we've probably experienced this. When we first start, you know, uh, doing a half-hour devotional in the morning, it goes a long way. It, you know, we can be very sort of evangelistic about that practice as well. But familiarity and complacency can kind of creep in. And it's possible that even in our spiritual life, familiarity can get in the way of tasting and seeing that next level that God wants to take you to. Because he might want to shock you with something completely new. And your religious activity, right, that's what that second last song uh, that we sang is getting to, can become a kind of, in our eyes, a good in itself, where we're not getting the full benefit that God might want to bring us. It's better to read the Bible for 10 minutes every day than not to read it, but it's better even than that to be looking constantly for new ways that God can break into your life and give you something new. So it's possible that we don't taste and see this good thing that David is talking about because we fear and because we're familiar. There's another F I think that's particularly relevant to us in this moment and that's that we're full, right? We're just full. Even the most delicious meal can have no appeal if you're already full. Uh, and this, I'm showing my age a little bit here, um, but this is what was going on with the garlic bread at Sizzlers, right? Um, so you order the salad bar, um, there's a whole heap of food there that you would really fill up on, but you can't resist that garlic bread, can you? It just tastes too good. 
Um, well, actually, to be honest, I'm not crazy about it, but I think that, that's a general principle. That's what they were banking on, that you would fill up on these cheap carbs with a heap of, I don't know, there's probably cocaine in that parmesan flavouring, I reckon, the way that people went crazy for that. So that, you know, you would eat less bacon bits, basically, because it's a lot cheaper to feed people bacon, uh, white bread than bacon bits. Again, as with food, so with spirituality, you're filling up on stuff that's not necessarily bad, but is not leaving room for God, right? And that, that might be, I mean, our lives are just so full. That, that could be work, family, sport, all good stuff. Facebook, maybe slightly less good stuff. That there's just no time and attention for God. People used to talk about um, everything in its place when we, when we thought about the shape of our lives, putting our lives together. Um, they're doing so less these days um, because actually it's just an everything all the time world at the moment. Uh, in an everything in its place world, Increasingly, we were sort of having to do our spirituality in the margins of our lives. So we had work, family, sport, all that kind of stuff. And then hopefully we could fit church in on Sunday and, and maybe, um, you know, a life group or something like that in the middle of the week. Statistics are telling us that, you know, people are actually at work less now than they used to be, but they're working more. And why is that? It's because we've got the technology to be able to work wherever we are and the expectation that you know we're always on call across life not just from our work uh, has increased and so it's like uh, 24-7 nearly we're occupied right which is kind of a worry you know it's a worry when I see it in myself I'm having to sort of actively and intentionally watch some films at the moment for a subject that I'm teaching and it's just so easy to be there on the couch and to have my phone there as well, or to be watching the TV and thinking, I wonder if anyone's tweeting about what's happening in front of me. As scary as that is, that it's just an everything all the time world, uh, that we don't have the opportunity to turn off, that God could be squeezed out of our lives, I actually think there's a lot of opportunity there too for us as Christians because rather than doing our faith in the margins of our life on Sunday or for you know a few hours on a Wednesday night I think we have to kind of go with that and find our faith and spirituality find God in all of those moments and then there could be a certain richness in that but what we do have to be wary of and I see the time I realize we're running a little later today um that we're just full, right? That we're, f- we're, we're fill up on garlic bread when God has something a lot better for us to eat. So we might be missing out on that next level thing that God wants for us. David's words to us this morning might be, don't fill up on the wrong thing. Taste and see that God has something better for you something new, something more. I'm going to ask the band to come up here now um, and begin to lead us in a final song. I think this message really, and the message that's coming to, to us from Scripture this morning, 
deserves a call to action, actually. It's not enough to, to hear a truth like this and to not do something about it. So my challenge to, to you this week, thinking about those three Fs, can we shake it up a little bit? Is there a fear that you've got that's maybe stopping you from stepping into the middle of God's purpose for you? could be a fear, say, of your colleagues and what they might say if they find out that you've got a faith. A fear maybe uh, of inviting somebody uh, to church or, or sharing your faith with them. I'd encourage you to search your hearts and minds this morning and this week ahead. Is there a fear of something other than the Lord that might be keeping you out of that, which might be a block to tasting and seeing the goodness of God? I wonder if your spirituality might need a bit of a shake-up. Is there something that you're doing just because that's how you do it? Is there a bit of butter chicken spirituality in the shape of your life? Maybe uh, it would be beneficial to talk to somebody else and say, how do, you, how do you do this personal relationship with God thing? What does it look like when you pray? How do you read scripture? How do you praise God during the week? And then finally, how can you make room for God in the busyness of your life? It, it might look like carving out time, there's a good chance that it would for many of us. But maybe we also need to be creative about injecting God into things that we're already doing. This was produced by Cornerstone Christian Resources. It is deemed copyright and may be used by permission. For further information about Cornerstone Christian Resources, 